We really are building Volpost as a utility lifestyle brand. Uh, we purpose-driven, short and foremost, to ratchet down millions of tons of carbon at scale, create stronger communities and local jobs, and really power communities in the process. As a truly purpose-driven company, we see our place as part of a larger system that is evolving now, but hopefully can uh, reduce that anxiety for people to switch from gas to electric. Welcome to the official podcast of the EV Report. Here, we take a deep dive into the world of electric vehicles, bringing you exclusive interviews and insights into the company shaping our future. Let's get started. Welcome, I'm Brian Hagman, and my guest today is Jeff Prosserman, founder and CEO of Volt Post. How are you? Great, yeah, thanks for having me. Absolutely. So I guess to, to kick off the conversation, get things started, could you provide maybe a quick overview of your company and I guess what, what problems you're looking to solve within the EV market? So we founded Volt with the mission to decarbonize mobility by democratizing charging access. We do that by retrofitting existing lampposts, streetlights into an EV charging platform. Our solution significantly reduces the cost, timing, and physical footprint of charger deployment in the built environment and provides a scalable solution for both the public and private sector. So you take you take existing, I guess, light poles, say, in, in, in dense city areas, and you're able to retrofit them to a charging solution, basically. Is that what you're doing? Yeah. So effectively, when we think about the fact that there's 1% to 2% of cars on earth that are electric today, the need to obviously get 200% to prevent climate disaster, yeah, the primary adoption barrier being the lack of convenient and affordable charging, especially when you think about over half the cars in major cities that park on the street and people who live in apartment buildings who don't have private garages. If we want to truly provide a gateway for everyone to go from gas to electric, then curbside is a pathway to do so. So tell me about how, how does it compare to normal traditional charging? And I guess what are the advantages of your system? So we've designed both posts as a modular and upgradable platform, both physically and digitally. And what that basically means is, one, beyond the retrofit, significant mistake in the cost and timing to deploy chargers in the built environment by taking our charging system and encasing an existing one post and then effectively plugging into the grid within an hour and without any construction or trenching, which is a huge barrier for all chargers to be deployed in the built environment today, is those upfront soft costs. Then when we look at the modularity, enables us to maximize the charger uptime and lower the operating maintenance costs or the lifetime value of the charger. And that's because of modularity, we can have flexibility. Uh, so if there's a faulty module, everything's managed cloud. Obviously, we want to maximize uptime and reliability as there's been some challenges in the charging sector lately. Um, so we can quickly swap the faulty module having to replace that modularity also provides flexibility. So we can add two chargers for curbside configuration and then to four chargers parking lots, one on each side. So is this, you may have mentioned this too, is it level two or level three charging? Oh yeah, it is level two. And obviously there's a need for fast charging when you're driving from one city to the next and you have to tell off and the time of charge truly matters. But uh, when you're thinking about the fact that most cars are driving that's operated cities for less than 30 miles a day, plus sitting parked over 90% of the time. Um, ultimately, we look at it more from the lens of the time it takes out of somebody's life. So when you're thinking about the average driver who is potentially parking curbside and could plug in and top off some 
I was taking only seconds out of that person's life to plug in versus going on a mission to a fast charger. I can say firsthand experience living in New York, driving to a paid parking lot, sitting on the edge of town because that's the only place you can find a fast charger. That, in fact, actually is not a faster experience. Um, do you think anybody who's had maybe over the last few years recognizes that challenge? It actually ends up being a potentially two to three hour mission if you're just driving in the city. So providing that curbside solution and just free ubiquitous access to charging, we look at ourselves as part of a larger charging ecosystem and providing that convenience up front. Yeah. And is there a difference between, say, your chargers on, say, a residential street, like uh, more of a residential area versus maybe a business district? Or is it, is it, does it work the same, same, same system, everything? Yeah. So effectively, the modularity platform enables us to have flexibility for curbside versus public or private parking lots. And that flexibility enables us to also future proof as when we think about where kind of in the early adopters will mainstream the EV revolution and things will get faster and cheaper. And with that innovation, effectively, we'll have updated modules down the road, which can be upgraded in certain markets. And then obviously certain areas will have last generation still totally workable. Um, same thing like when you're thinking about plug, which I know has been an obvious concern uh, for some people and thinking about standards moving from the J-plug to the NACS uh, Tesla plug. At the end of the day, it's similar to the USB versus Apple conundrum of plugs. At the end of the day, for us, we provide both. And um, the flexibility and modularity enables the cyclist to decide. From a business perspective, where are you in the business uh, phase? Are you still in startup mode? Are you still in development phase? Do you have working chargers out in the field, I guess you'd say? Where are you? We have been on a journey here, certainly. It's been about three years to, since starting the company and with my two co-founders. And at this point, we've deployed in New York City for a pilot with the Department of Transportation. And then a second project in Detroit in a place called the Detroit Smart Parking Lab. And those were effectively pilots in a sandbox environment to show people how it works, showcase technology, refine before deploying in the public right away. And at this stage, we are securing projects to deploy in the spring of this year uh, to deploy publicly, as well as ramping up production of our first real batch of units. And then we intend to scale based on the pipeline of demand that we have the second half of the year and just kind of keep going from there. But there's a lot of need across the country for chargers. This episode is brought to you by Hagman Search. When it comes to finding top-tier talent for your executive team, Hagman Search is the name you can trust. Not simply a recruiting firm, it's your strategic partner. Go to hagmansearch.com to learn more. Do you see your your solution replacing traditional chargers in, in large cities, or is, is this more kind of a complement to to the other chargers that are out there that and will be out there? Um, we look at it as a broader charging ecosystem. We're not, I mean... Obviously, if there's chargers that are down that need replacement, that's the whole other thing. And certainly we could feasibly replace this in a cost-effective way in those scenarios, but we're not looking at placing. We really see this as there's such a need for chargers. When you think about the fact they use stats in Europe and China, around one public charger for 10 EV sold as a concept. And if you look at the amount of cars on the road, anywhere in the U.S. today, obviously California has the most chargers compared to the rest of the country. 
But there's just a tremendous amount of interpreters that are needed, whether you're reading a Bloomberg or McKinsey report or just talking to the person next to you in their pain points. In the end of the day, you don't think about how many plugs in the room that you're in, sitting in right now, listening to this. You're going to need just as much ubiquity in the amount of chargers around if we're going to truly get everyone to go gas electric. So we're just part of that broader ecosystem. So in 2023, there were more EVs sold in the U.S. than ever before. I believe there was like 1.2 million EVs that were sold. But, it, it, you know, overall, it's still a small percentage of the overall market as far as car sales. But it's growing. You know, one of the challenges that you, you hear a lot is that, you know, why people don't buy an EV or they're not buying it yet is because of the charging infrastructure. So do you, do you agree with that? Or do you think there's really a lot of other overlying issues why people aren't buying it? I mean, certainly range anxiety is one of the primary issues and barriers for people to go for gas or electric. I mean, one of our goals is to create what we call range zen, um, the opposite effect, which is if it can be convenient access around the corner and they're just everywhere, then hopefully you can reduce that anxiety. And in a few years' time, we can look back at this period of transition as companies like us taking the necessary steps to provide that infrastructure to support people. Anxiety today. Obviously, there's the price parity to gas vehicles and then as we continue to come down very similar to the solar industry with the amount of units sold to drive it into a more affordable range. But that's like any new technology. We're at a certain point in the innovation curve. And as we're driving the mainstream, we are effectively now serving a much broader audience, which have different expectations. And we really are building Volpost as a utility lifestyle brand. Uh, we purpose-driven First and foremost, to ratchet down millions of tons of carpet at scale, create stronger communities and local jobs, and really power communities in the process. As a truly purpose-driven company, we see our place as part of a larger system that is evolving now, that hopefully can uh, reduce that anxiety for people to switch from gas to electric. Let's talk. I want to talk about the government. Uh, aspect to things here. You know, you're you're on the other side, you know, actually with the infrastructure, but there's a lot of government policies, a lot of push here in the US, other region, other areas of the of the of the world, really trying to to incentivize EV growth transition. Um so what what are your thoughts on this? I mean, is it do you think it's is is it helping? Is it hindering? Is it what are your thoughts on this as far as the the EV infrastructure development and the government's role in it? Yeah, I mean it's a Balancing Act, for sure. And I think the Biden administration with the infrastructure bill has spurred the clean energy transition in a transformative way. Companies like Volt Post to enact or enable deployment at a much more rapid scale than looked impossible. That would be the policy dimension. For example, there's the $7.5 billion built out the charging network to meet the targets of over half the cars being electric by 2030. And 2.5 billion of the 7.5 is designated to community-based charging, which effectively is the area that we're obviously focused on. And the first wave of that was just announced over 600 million to about just under 50 different groups across the U.S. And now all of these organizations, municipalities are having budget to deploy chargers for the first time in history. And we recognize we're wiring a few players that are born in America and built coast to coast 
that can really support the need equitable perspective. But in, in many ways, it feels like there's a tremendous amount of demand that the policy dimension has accelerated. And there's very few suppliers that actually have a differentiated product like us that can meet that demand. So as much as you could say it's competitive for some of the Charger 1.0 companies that started maybe a decade ago, in the end of the day, there's just so many chargers needed at this moment. And we kind of need all hands on deck delivering them at over capacity we can from our perspective. So I want to take a little deeper dive into your charging units, your chargers. From a logistical, logistical aspect, how does the retrofitting of lampposts work? Like, can you walk me through a little bit about like the conversion, like wh- what it entails? Is it a really simple process? Is it, it, is there a lot of work involved to be able to, to make it happen? Like wh- what's the, what's the process like? Really good question. We're working with public and private partners as well as utilities in different regions. So the first question is, who actually owns the lamppost or utility pool, because that is effectively who you're contracting with. Once you figure that out in a region, institution, either municipality, utility company, or the privately owned, it should say, an enterprise park you want. Once you figure that out, then you figure out, is the power coming from above or obviously below? And if it's coming from below and the goal is to not do construction and trenching, then in our case, we're looking at the existing conduit we're sending a certified electrician or technician on our team to take a look at the actual existing infrastructure, saying this one checks out and we can do the upgrade without significant additional work. At that point, effectively being able to go to contract once we get all legal paperwork out of the way, being in the spot that we can send um, the person who's installing out links the actual charger. And because we're removing that construction trenching front, we can actually encase the existing lampposts and we've installed in an hour, which is when you're thinking about the construction trenching, thinking about tearing up the sidewalk or the parking lot, the weeks for permitting and all the other challenges. I mean, because we're not fast charging as well, we're not dealing with some of the interconnection utility challenges. Is there enough power here? Because there usually is. I mean, you have to figure out the grid capacity, public or private, looking at on that public side, the utility maps on the private side, if there's no power or existing panel board. And then once you check all the boxes, you basically plug it in to the grid and it works. And then from that point, from my driver experience, just to kind of walk you through, effectively there's mobile app for discoveries around you. Then you see the status, some of other charging apps, digital payments for the kilowatts consumed for each charging event, insights, and your history, as you can imagine. Then on the dashboard, the utilization services for stakeholders, public, private customers, and that enables us to, one, deal with the accounting and backend, obviously paying your utility as pass-through for the drivers. And then if there's any additional tariffs or fees that the public private partners are setting, which they can use to actually generate revenue from that charger if if they choose, depending on the use case. And then basically, that's a live charger. It could be publicly available or set as privately available. If it's, say, a business, if there's certain powers you want it available, if it's 24-7. And then obviously accounting for parking regulation as well as another factor. Great. So the financial model, for from your all's perspective, um, from VoltPost, is there residual 
revenue generated or is it project-based? You sell just the the charging infrastructure per se. Then once you're done with that project, you're done on the revenue side. How does that work? We have a few different ways we activate customers because obviously we have a new solution and there's certain ways budgets have to work. But our preferred model is the hardware as a service where it's a turnkey solution where we bundle the charger, the software, the data, and the operating maintenance costs as a solution for public private partners. By doing it that way, it comes to operating costs where we have recurring revenue, which enables us at scale to tap into project finance and create a more sustainable business model than some of the other charging companies historically, actually more similar to solar than it is to charging in many ways. And then ultimately the revenue on the utilization side for the charging events could be offset in, in that cost once you reach a certain threshold. So effectively the fees that can be set on the back end become an opportunity for event centers. As far as the criteria selecting what areas or profiles, streets, cities qualify maybe for your Besides the obvious, right? Like, you know, lampposts, electricity. But is there anything else like underlying or maybe not so obvious uh, criteria that you look for that makes this the street or the city a better candidate for this charging infrastructure? The first question is, does it work in the specific location? But the second question very quickly becomes, okay, where should we put these and why? And that rationalization, we do geospatial analysis or support cities and companies uh, that may have larger real estate footprints or jurisdictions where we look at the amount of cars on road, the amount of EVs on road in, say, a town, then the grid capacity, the parking regulation, equity factors, whatever else that may be considerations, and then, obviously, where the pools exist today and where the power exists today, and then begin to try and triangulate what our recommendations are for that level of a charger network. And it's not a one-size-fits-all analysis, right? But at the end of the day, we try to provide that thought leadership as part of the project development process so we can be taking a more integrated approach. Have you had any issues with weather as far as, you know, obviously it's winter here in the U.S. and cold weather, we had some cold snaps. Have you had any challenges on the R&D side and the development side on the, the testing as far as extreme extreme weather, whether it's really hot, really cold? Is this, does your system work pretty much in any 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 weather, any climate? So, I mean, as part of the research and development product development process, you go through the UL certification standards, and FCC and Energy Star, stamps of approval, safety perspective, internal reliability perspective. Uh, the UL process, they basically destroy your trenches and hot and cool temperatures and put it through the rear and make sure that beyond virtual testing, that physically it's going to stay up. Obviously, there's going to be storms and unforeseen circumstances. We're putting a product outside in the built-in wiring and that comes back to the modularity of being able to quickly swap out modules if there were issues, everything managed in the cloud. And that's another reason why we go down this hardware service model because it ties on a servicing contract across the life of the unit rather than just selling a charger and expecting somebody else to deal with it. 
Yeah, I was going to ask you, that was my next question, is I was going to say the number one complaint or issue, it seems, is reliability with charging. You know, you see articles or you see images of people pulling up to a public station, maybe off the highway or whatever. They're almost empty. They're almost, uh, the batteries be charged and, you know, it's out of order or whatever. So what's your, what's your model? Yeah. Your philosophy on the, the, the maintenance side, maintaining your unit. You all manage it. Once you've done the project, is the person who owns it, uh, manages the maintenance on it? Yeah. So we're taking responsibility for automating trading through the model, which effectively has people locally that are subcontracting to support the operating maintenance on a regular schedule to maintain at least 70% uptime, which is set by the national regulation policy. But the reality is, I think it's more of an accountability challenge where all of the charger companies, because they have written into their contracts the expectation to have to manage this over life, um, have just had no one to foot the bill. Or in our case, <laughs> as a younger company that is coming up, seeing those challenges, we're making sure to account for that um, day one. As well as, I mean, I think from like a customer service perspective, a lot of these chargers, you just get uh, maybe a notice out of order, bad view, and it's you do making sure that we have that connection to the customers through the mobile app that we're directly able to support and troubleshoot and monitor this into bad customer experience. So before we wrap up, I want to learn a little bit more about your background. So what what is your background? Did you, you know, do you have a uh, a technical background? Uh, you know, what, and what was your, I guess, inspiration or what was your motivation for starting this company? So I've been working in technology in New York for about 20 years now. And prior to starting with Gold Post, I was the director of innovation at Samsung, where I had a team in New York, in Mountain View and Austin, taking a portfolio of digital products from concept to commercialization. My co-founder, Jordan Carey, I met at Samsung. We climbed for half a decade. We made the fridge with the screen and, and the cameras inside, among other things. So we built complex, innovative tech partner software and IoT in past lives. So it's maybe a more natural extension than Sun. Um, and our third co-founder, Myro, I met in a Columbia Masters program for sustainability management, like a green MBA. And I mean, my real inspiration on a personal level is that when my son started to take his first steps um, just before the pandemic, it was rather timely. Greta and young people around the world were striking for climate in the 2013 timeframe and kind of just came to a turning point where obviously I worked in tech and built all these things. But when my son was the age I am now, wanted to say that I did everything I could to turn things around this whole climate challenge. So yeah. That led me to make a lot of decisions in a certain stream of directions of going back to school and getting this master's, learning the climate science and the pain points, writing a research paper in the first semester, which ultimately turned into what is now full post. And three years later, we're a venture-backed seed stage company with the team in New York and San Francisco, a few people distributed, truly purpose-driven, federally good science to go net zero. So I don't know if we'll get there, but I know we're giving it our best shot. And we assembled a great team who and investors who truly believe the yeah, fact that we need to get there in spite of all the challenges. And so the what is charging, but the why is really what's driving us. Yeah, no, that's great. So you're coming from the corporate world, um, being a professional and then jumping into the entrepreneurial world uh, with your startup. I mean, is there anything that stands out 
in your mind that sticks out on, I guess, maybe some of the biggest challenges or maybe maybe even a surprise that you've learned that you've had as you've been growing your company? I mean, what we're trying to do is really hard. I'll be the first one to say that it's a little bit crazy, that there's a thin line between crazy and brilliant, and that line is persistence. And really, it starts with, are you building something that can truly create value in the world? That in your first two or three minutes of talking to somebody, they want to commit their time and energy or excitement or enthusiasm to taking it a step further. And that could be providing an interaction, or that could be like your own co-founder doing an initial product design or initial financial model, or an investor going through a process with you and trying to refine thinking or potential partner in the city, giving you the type of day saying, we really need this to exist, even if it seems hard, like somebody has to do this. So it's kind of, it's really about finding people who believe what you believe and building a community of supporters. And we've been really fortunate in the three years to have participated in a number of accelerated programs that has built that community. And at this point, it's about channeling the energy and empowering both the individuals that are part of this journey now, as well as finding others on, honestly, on almost on a daily basis who, um, in some way want to spread the word. Is there any uh, one piece of advice you can think of that you would offer to someone who's looking to start a company in the EV space or just in general, uh, you know, startup? I would say that we're in a unique window where we have limited time to turn things around in this whole climate movement. And if you have skills in whatever it is that you may have been doing with your career up to this point, and you are in any way considering to apply those skills and your time and energy toward whatever aspect of decarbonization in the carbon movement, then you will find there's a growing community, uh, myself included, who will take a conversation, try to pull you in the right direction, and recognize that we really do need all hands on deck to get us to net zero. So as challenging the main book, take that pivot into the climate movement, and we, we only have this one shot. I know that may sound overly dramatic or what have you, but you don't regret trying. Jeff, it has been a pleasure. I appreciate your time today. I've uh, I've enjoyed our conversation and I really do look forward to keeping up with uh, your journey with Vault Post. And hopefully we can do this again at some time and get a, get an update. Well, sounds great. Yeah, I really appreciate your time today, Brian. And honestly, happy to continue to talk as things progress with the company's development. And yeah, we'll just keep, keep going and keep transforming one lamppost to the next into chargers and see you down the road. I'm Brian Hagman, founder of the EV Report, and I would like to thank today's guest, along with all of you, for tuning in. Don't forget to hit subscribe, and I'll see you next time.